we know, of course, that there are all kinds of different letters, right? I mean, even in this day of emails and text messaging and blogging, there's still, we still get mail, right? I, I got some, you know, we got some business letters. The bank will send you a letter or, uh, you know, the, we're getting many letters these days from people running for office telling us why we should vote for them and not for the other people. We get uh, legal letters. You know, once I received a letter from an, an attorney, God bless attorneys. They are good at writing letters, aren't they? I mean, like six pages. And at the end of it, I was like, ah, what did I do? It turned out not to be that bad. Don't worry. But I mean, they're good at writing letters. Uh, one of the maybe our favorite kind of letters, though, is like a, a love letter. And I remember getting some letters from my wife while we were dating. When she, like one summer, she went back to Minnesota while we were in college and sent me this letter. And I don't know about you with with, especially with love letters, but, but with these letters, I just remember like reading it and then reading it again and then like analyzing every sentence and then breaking it down to the phrases within the sentences and then just her selection or her choice of words, right? And, and I didn't just read this letter, I listened to this letter and I listened to not only what the letter said, but what it said in between the lines, right? I think that's what we're being invited to do with these letters to the seven churches in Revelation. We're, we're invited not just to, to hear them and to read them, but to really listen to them. And to listen to not what only is being said in the, the black print, but what's being said between the lines. And in fact, there's this great little phrase that I want to just highlight for just a moment, especially here on Pentecost Sunday. This great little phrase that comes up at the end of each of these seven letters. Maybe you've already noticed it in the first two that we've looked at. It'll be there again today. And in each of the four of the remaining letters, this key little phrase that I want us to hear and I want us to make sure we know what's going on there. I have it right on the screen here for you. Read this with me. Listen to what it says at the end of every letter. He, read it with me. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The Spirit is speaking to the churches. Uh, Eugene Peterson, one of my favorite writers, he says this about, uh, about the Spirit speaking to the churches. He says, whatever differences there are between the churches, two things are constant. The Spirit speaks and the people listen. We are to be people who are learning to listen to the Spirit of God as we learn to be the people that He has called us to be and that He wants us to be. All this stuff that we've talked about today, about that, that, G, that the Holy Spirit can do in the life of the individual. He wants to do it in the life of the church as well. We're learning to listen to the Spirit. He's, he's leading us. He's guiding us. He's opening us up into all truth. And these things are so significant for us as we think about who we are to be. Peterson, again, he just says, listening is the common task of the church. Churches are to be listening posts. And I don't know about you, but the reality is, is that often we are not so good at listening in the church. You may even be a little bit better at it than me as you get to listen on Sundays. I just get to talk, right? And, and, and yet all of us, we, we need to hone our skills and to create space and create time in our lives where we can simply listen. As we step into new directions as a church body, as we move into new places of mission and ministry, we want to be sure that we are doing so 
as the Spirit speaks to us and leads us into those places. So just a little challenge. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. I, I know I, I'm looking around. It looks like you all have ears. Isn't it interesting that God didn't give us ear lids? It's eyelids, but no ear lids. I think it's fascinating. We, we, are to, we are to listen and be listening to what the Spirit's saying to us. And so let's develop that. Let's hone that in. And uh, with practice, we can learn uh, to, to not only read letters like this, but to analyze, and not only to analyze the words and the phrases, but to really listen to what the Spirit's saying, even what He's saying between the lines. So let's look at the next, uh, le- next letter here today, and that's from uh, Revelation, again, chapter 2, verse uh, 12, the letter to the church in Pergamum. Would you stand up with me as I read this to you? And for us, you can follow along on the screen. Uh, verse 12 of chapter 2, all the way down through verse 17. And at the end, I'll just say this is the word of the Lord, and with vibrancy and life, you can say, thanks be to God, all right? It's your chance for for uh, crowd participation. So bring it. To the angel of the church in Pergamum write, These are the words of him who has the sharp, double-edged sword. I know where you live, where Satan has his throne. Yet you remain true to my name. You did not renounce your faith in me, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was put to death in your city, where Satan lives. Nevertheless, I have a few things against you. You have people there who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin by eating food sacrificed to idols and by committing sexual immorality. Likewise, you also have those who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Repent, therefore. Otherwise, I will soon come to you and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give some of the hidden manna. I will also give him a white stone with a new name written on it, known only to him who receives it. And this is the word of the Lord. Well done. You can be seated. If you're anything like me, all you can think about right now is hidden manna and a white stone with a new name written on it. We'll get there, all right? We'll get there. Um, The first promise, though, of Jesus to the people in Pergamum, if taken out of context, can sound a little threatening, a little intimidating, uh, a little scary. This is Jesus himself speaking to them and saying, I know where you live. It almost sounds like, I'll track you down. Oh, I'll find you, right? I, I know where you live. I can get you if I, if I want to. But that's not what Jesus is saying here. Let's put it back in context. Because what sounds like a promise, again, to track them down and give them what they had coming was actually a promise that Jesus knew exactly what was going on in their lives. He knew the challenges of the place where they lived. He knew the threats and the dangers and the persecutions and the difficulties. Jesus, of all people, knew that Pergamum was not a nice place to live if you were a follower of his. In fact, one commentator says that of all the seven cities, this was the city that there was most likely to be a a significant clash between 
the, the followers of Christ and, and the, the city leaders. It was not, Pergamon was not a great city of, of commerce or industry like Ephesus and like Smyrna was that we've been talking about in the last couple of weeks. But what it lacked in commerce, what it lacked in industry, it was attempting with all its might to make up for in terms of religious and political power. You'll remember, and maybe not, but you, you're learning even now that the, that the Romans, starting out of Rome, had, had wielded their power and spread their empire out all over uh, Europe and northern Africa and East Asia and, and was extending over into this part of Asia where Pergamum was. And, and, and Pergamum, in fact, had become the Roman capital of, of, of the, the province of Asia. They were very proud in the fact that, that while they knew they would never necessarily uh, e equal Rome in terms of their religious and political power, they wanted to become a reflection of Rome in the East. And so they were going about it with all their might, building temples to uh, Roman emperors. A visitor to the city could not mistake or could not miss the, the temples popping up all over to, to the Roman emperors and to the the, the pagan gods of Zeus and Athena and other ones, they, they, were, they were literally everywhere you would look, overpowering. This was, a, this was a place that was a difficult place for Christians to live. This was not just sin city. This was the place, as Jesus called it, where Satan had his throne. Could you see that on a billboard? <laughs> Welcome to Pergamum. The place where Satan has his throne. I, I, I don't think that would go over too big. I don't, I don't see that happening. But, but this is the place that Jesus is speaking of. He knows the place where they lived. But even into this difficult place, Jesus speaks words of encouragement. Speaks words of, of, of edification, building the people up, comforting the people in the midst of their situation. Again, he knew the difficulty. He knew the challenges. He knew this was the place where Satan lived. And, and, and was very much on the scene and apparently very much in power. But Jesus recognizes that amidst this kind of, uh, of context, he declares that the church had remained faithful and true. He speaks to this very issue right there that in spite of the pressure, the persecution, the threats, even in the face of one of their own, this Antipas character that we just don't know much more about, who, who had been executed for his faith, apparently, one of their very own being killed, even in the face of all of this, the folks there, the church there in Pergamon, had remained faithful. They had remained true. They had kept true to the gospel they had received. They had remained faithful to the calling that God had placed on their lives. Now, faithful and true got me thinking about my, uh, my, my own life a little bit. Yesterday was my 17th anniversary of marriage to my beautiful wife. 17 years. Some of you are like, oh, you're just getting started. In fact, uh, I, met, I was talking with someone the other night, and uh, you know, I was feeling pretty good about 17 years, and, and I was an older person, and I said to them, hey, 17 years, you know, tomorrow is my anniversary, and they said to me, 52. <laughs> Can't touch that. 52. So I, I went to bed that night. I woke up in the morning. I was like, all right, 17 plus 17, 34 plus another 17, 51 plus one more. Man, I'm only, I'm not even a third of the way there. 
feel like this has been going on for a long time. And I, you know, I, I still, I'm not even close. But what a, a joy, what a privilege to think about. So, I mean, we dated for four years before we got married. So, did, I mean, just, you know, praise you, Kyla. I mean, she's been, put, been putting up with me for 21 years of her life. And uh, that's, that's uh, quite a deal. Faithful and true. I mean, what a, when we think about our marriages, we think about not just 17 years, but 52 years about how God brings together these couples and, and these families, these marriages, and allows them to be uh, individuals to be faithful and true to one another, even in the midst of, of a culture, right? And we read about it again this week, another a political leader, another congressman, you know, who really spoke into the values of family and all these things, caught again in, in an affair, resigning from his position. I mean, this is a culture that we live in that, that bombards marriages over and over and over and gives us all sorts of outs and reasons why we should not remain faithful to one another in marriage. It was uh, several years ago, actually just after I, I think, started pastoring, I got a call from some people who had been married by a Nazarene pastor, and they were coming to Santa Barbara to celebrate their, I think it was like their 25th anniversary, and they wanted another Nazarene pastor to come and, and uh, renew their vows, right? Speak their vows to them. So it was really kind of interesting. I'm this young guy, and I'm going in, and I'm, you know, doing this marriage vow renewal. But I tell you what, I had no idea what to expect. It turned out to be one of the most special moments. I didn't know these people. They didn't know me. But as I read through those vows with them and watched them just renew those vows and renew that commitment, renew that, that uh, covenant of faithfulness, to one another, it was very powerful. As they spoke those words, I, I just looked back in my, in my computer and found the, the, the words that I had them repeat that day. I renew my promise before God, our family and friends, to be your loving and faithful husband, to share my life with you in wealth and in poverty, in sickness and in health, in good times and in bad times, for as long as we both shall live. You know, this is, the, this is the invitation, not just for those of us who are married, but for the church today to remain faithful and true to, to the Lord who has called us to himself, who has invited us into a relationship with him, to remain faithful and true amidst all the temptations, all the shortcuts, all the other sorts of options that are open to us, to remember the words of commitment that we have spoken to Christ. But even more so, perhaps, to remember the words of commitment that he has spoken to us and the commitment that he has shown to us through his death on the cross, willing to pay the ultimate price. He, he, he's described here as the one who has the sharp, double-edged sword. This is a warrior Jesus, in a sense, one who is able to speak truth and by the power of his word to encourage and equip and, and, and help us to remain faithful and true and to call us to that kind of a life. So we, uh, we want to follow in that. We want to walk in the steps of these folks in Pergamum who are remaining faithful and true. Unfortunately, Jesus recognizes and points out the fact that while perhaps the, even a significant number within the church were remaining faithful and true, there were some who were not. And, and so here we hear it again. Jesus said, I have these things against you. And every time I read that in these letters, I just, you know, shake in my boots a little bit to hear Jesus say, I have these things against you. But, but he does. 
Because there were some here who were not remaining faithful and true to his way. There were some who, as we're told here, were, were holding to the teaching of Balaam. And maybe some of you, we read that and we're like, what is that all about? Who's this Balaam character? And, and what does that have to do with what the church in Pergamum was doing? Well, Balaam, if you look back into the book of Numbers, Balaam was this prophet, kind of this, this uh, prophet who, who was his own, he was an independent prophet, we'll say that. And the, the enemies of Israel tried to get him to, to prophesy against Israel, but God would not let him prophesy against Israel. He could only say good things about Israel. So he got in a little trouble with the guy who was trying to get him to prophesy against Israel. And in so doing, in all this conversation, Balaam uh, advised, he didn't really prophesy, but he advised the Midianites, these pagan people, he advised them as to how they could get at the Israelites. And it was that they could send their women in after the Israelite men. And it worked. And the Israelite men, in turning to the Midianite women, turned away from God and, and fell to this false teaching. And so Balaam, in his advice to these folks, became really the prototype for anyone who would come after him, a false teacher who would lead God's people into compromise, who would lead God's people away from the truth and into false teaching. And so that's what apparently has happened, Jesus is saying. There are some here in the church in Pergamum who have decided that while they think it's good to be a follower of Jesus, they are also believing that it's okay for us to compromise our standards somewhat and to engage in this instance, to engage in the worship of the imperial cult, the, the emperors and the pagan worship practices. And so evidently what's happening here in Pergamum is there's some Christians who are having their cake and they're eating it too. They're saying, I got Jesus, following Jesus, I'm worshiping him, but just in order to make things go a little bit better for me within the culture and the society that I'm a part of, to be a little more accepted, to get along better with the people that I work with and I live with, for my business to run better, then I'm also going to participate in the pagan worship practices. I'm also going to eat food that's sacrificed to idols. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to, even if it comes down to it, you know, I, I guess if it has to be someone, it'll be me. I'll participate in the sexual debauchery that went on in the worship of the pagan gods. So these Christians here are saying, I, I'm here, but I'm also here. They were a community that had been compromised by the choices of these these few or these many within the church. Uh, many of us know, I remember when I used to, when I was in college, I, some of you were college students, that when I, whenever I would come home for a vacation, whether it be winter break or spring break or summer break, that first week I'd get back, something would all, almost always happen every time. And that something was I would get sick. And I realized that uh, what had happened was, in that last week of being at school, I had usually been taking finals. And so what happens when you take finals? Well, maybe most of you studied ahead and all that kind of stuff. But I, I would stay up late, and I didn't get a whole lot of sleep, and, and I um, got a little bit stressed, and maybe I didn't eat so well. And because of that, my immune system was weak. It was low. It was compromised, right? And when my immune system or when your immune system gets compromised, what, is that, what happens? It leaves us vulnerable to, to sickness. It leaves us vulnerable to disease. It leaves us vulnerable to all sorts of attacks. It leaves us, leaves us vulnerable to, to, to personal, uh, just not well-being, right? 
And in the church, it's the same way. When there's a community that has, has compromised itself, when there's some within the community who have decided, well, I'm going to do this, but I'm also going to do this, it leaves a community vulnerable to devastation. And this is what Jesus says, repent. Did you hear him? For Jesus, this is not a, a casual matter in any way. For Jesus, this is a, a, a serious, urgent matter. Turn around. Come back. Live in a new way. Stop trying to live in both worlds. Live only for me. And he says, if you don't, did you hear this? If you don't, I will soon come to you and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth, with my word. Jesus says, I will speak truth and I will make truth to be known. I began to think about it a little bit in, in, in the church today. If we uh, try to maintain our faith in Christ while also making room in our lives for the culture around us to have its grip in our lives, how dangerous that can be for the community of faith. We can become compromised and, and, and the church can, can suffer great uh, devastation and destruction. I thought about it and how this might look. Many Christians today... We try to worship Jesus, and at the same time, we try to enjoy all the same entertainments that the world has to offer. We even say, I got Jesus, but I also want to enjoy all the entertainments that the world has to offer. Whatever might come at me through the media, whatever might come at me through music or movies or whatever it might be. Other Christians try to worship Jesus and still pursue wealth and riches and the pursuits of capitalism, just like everybody else does in our culture. Well, I've got Jesus. I've Jesusified my capitalist quest, right? I've got Jesus, but I also, I just want to get as much as I possibly can because that's how we do it in America, right? Or maybe there's other Christians who say, yeah, I, I love Jesus, I want to follow Jesus, but I'm also very much involved in the political game. I'm going I'm to vie for political power and influence and, and, and power in this, in this world. And we say, I've got Jesus, but I also want to, be uh, an influence in the state and in the government. Not that that's necessarily a bad thing, but when we try to, 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 to balance these and live actually with one foot in both worlds, Jesus says, forget about it. It's dangerous. Because what happens is when we leave ourselves open and vulnerable to these other influences, when we leave ourselves open and vulnerable to to the, the, the clutches, really, of wealth and the clutches of, the, of the, the, the government or the society, when we leave ourselves open to the clutches of entertainment, we, we leave ourselves very vulnerable to, over time, becoming or, or beginning to become shaped and conformed to the values and the convictions of that world as opposed to the values and the convictions of the kingdom of God. We leave ourselves very very vulnerable. Maybe that's why Jesus said things like you can't worship, you, know, you can't serve both God and money. Maybe that's why he said to give to Caesar, the government, what's Caesar's? Give him your taxes. But give to God what's God's, Jesus said. In other words, give God your life. Maybe that's why Jesus said some of the things like this. Well, they were a compromised community. And it's not uh, too difficult for us to see how we could become uh, a community in the same way. And so for them and for us, uh, the Christians then and the Christians today, it really comes down to a matter of reflecting the right image. And this is the last thought I want to put up here for us. What image or whose image 
are we going to reflect ultimately? Remember the, 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 the church or, or the people there in Pergamum wanted to reflect Rome, right? They wanted to live out. They wanted to look like Rome. Well, in the same way that they wanted to reflect the principles and the convictions of the Roman Empire, the church in Pergamum was being called upon not to reflect that society, but to reflect the image of Jesus. What does it mean to reflect something? Well, if a mirror is going to reflect you, Tom, then we're going to have to put the mirror right here in front of you, right, so you can look at it and it can reflect your image. If you're going to reflect something, you've got to get in front of it. And basically that's what the, the question is. What are we going to put ourselves in front of today? What were they going to put themselves in front of? What are we going to put ourselves in front of? For the people then, were they going to continue to uh, put themselves in, in front of the, the emperor and the cultic worship? Were they going to continue to place themselves in that context where they would eventually again be shaped and formed by that, those principles and those convictions? Or were they going to place themselves in front of, of Jesus, in front of the worship of the one true living God? The question remains the same for us today. How do we live? Where do we live? Where do we put ourselves? Where do we place ourselves? We place ourselves in the context where we might soak up the, the values, again, and the convictions of the society that we live in. And we place ourselves in the context where we're just, we're just kind of taking it all in and we're reflecting that right back to the world around us. Or are we putting ourselves in front of Christ in our, in our worship? And in our discipleship, and our study, and our prayer, in our engaging, in our service, are we putting ourselves in front of Christ by, by, and what he wants us to be, and his values, and his convictions, so that we might reflect that right back into the world in which we live? One, uh, one guy I read this week asked it like this. He said, where are we finding our identity? This is what it comes down to. It's a question of identity for the followers of Christ today. Where are we finding our identity? Is it in the dominant culture? Or is it in the kingdom of God? Is it in entertainment and money and power? Or is it in God's kingdom? Those who rejoice in eternity, he says, are those who have found the discernment to live in the world but not be of the world. Those whose lives reflect the light and love of Jesus. They are those whose values and convictions reflect not the image of the empire, but the image of God. It's a difficult task. We are surrounded. It's not easy. But he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the church. If the Spirit is calling us to be the people of God like this, a people who, who accurately and beautifully reflects the image of Christ to the world in which we live, then it is the same Spirit who will give us the strength, who will give us the power, who will give us the discernment to, to, to know what it is that is having influence on our lives and to shy away from that or to steer clearly away from that that would cause us to reflect the wrong image and to put ourselves squarely in front of the things of God that would help us to reflect his image in the world. Well, Jesus says, uh, you got the spirit, 
but you might need a little more incentive. You might need a little more motivation. You might need a little more something to, to get you over the hump, to keep you going in this quest, in this very difficult situation in which we live, to, 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 to live out what it means to, to reflect the image of Christ. So I'm going to give you some of the hidden manna. What was manna? Well, in the Old Testament, right, it was, it was that which God gave to the Israelites as they were on their wilderness journey to sustain them. It was the food from heaven when they had nothing else to sustain them and give them the strength that they needed to continue their journey. Would it not make perfect sense for God to say, you know, you're eating the food sacrificed to idols. You might think that you need to pursue all these other things in order to have what you need to to live in this society. Really, Jesus says, I am going to give you everything you need. You can count on me to sustain you and to nourish you and to strengthen you in such a way that you can face the challenges that are ahead of you. I don't know about you, but I, I, I long in our day and in our culture and this city that we live in and some of the challenges that we face and some of the temptations and some of the things that would, that would derail us from living the Christian life, I long for some of that manna myself. <laughs> for Jesus just to sustain and nourish me and for Jesus to sustain and nourish you as you travel this journey with him, as we're in this wilderness adventure, so to speak, that he would feed you and nourish you, and not only for now, but for all of time. And then the second thing he says, I'll give you not only hidden manna, but I'll give you this white stone with a new name written on it. And most scholars think that the new name just simply represents all the new things, all the newness that God is bringing into the lives of those who hold steady of those who remain faithful and true, of those who live in relationship with him, of all the promises that are theirs, the new life, the new identity, the new hope that is ours as we remain faithful and overcome and live in the midst of very challenging situations. But the white stone, that's another matter. It's kind of interesting. Lots of different things that people suggest. But the one that made the most sense to me was that in this day, a stone, in particular a white stone, was often used like a ticket. You got a ticket, you got a white stone to be invited to a certain event or a certain function. And, and it could be that, that the white stone here is that which is presented to those who overcome, inviting them, giving them access to all of heaven, to all the benefits, all the resources of heaven and eternity. When I was uh, younger, I was, uh, I think I've shared this a little bit, but one of my and my friends, when we would go to, you know, basketball games and baseball games, we would often buy the cheapest ticket and sit in the most expensive seats. <laughs> and, uh, I'm not necessarily advocating that here this morning, but uh, I've since repented, Mom, <laughs> to my mother and to the Lord. But uh, no, I, I would buy those, you know, we'd buy those $5 seats and we moved down to the, you know, $100 seats back in the day. They're probably... $500 seats now. But uh, we, we moved down as close as we could. My favorite, my favorite time, though, was one time we, we had a Golden State Warriors basketball game. A couple, one of my friends and me and, and I, and we, we bought our cheap tickets, and we scooted down front. We were sitting there, and someone behind us tapped on our shoulders and said, you're probably not going to be able to sit there for very long. And we said, why not? 
Why wouldn't we be able to? And they said, because that's the coach's wife's seat. <laughs> and so we said, awesome. We'd love to meet her. <laughs> so we, uh, we, we stayed there until she came. And she said, sorry, guys, you're going to have to move. And we said, hi, it's George Carl, was the coach at the time. Some of you know him. And we said, hi, Mrs. Carl, how you doing? And you know, thanks. Get, say hi to your husband for us. <laughs> Uh, it, was, it was hilarious. And we moved on to a closer seat, right? I mean, we didn't just give up that easy. But anyway, that was a lifetime, a, a younger day of just never having a permanent seat, never having the right ticket, right? Always ushers looking at me and saying, you know? Well, recently, there's a, a friend of ours who lives in, in Pasadena, and he has season tickets to the Dodgers. And he, once a year, he gives us a, a set of his season tickets, four tickets. And I got to tell you, these are good seats. These, the field level, third base side. I mean, they're, they're like, you know, I'm looking for movie stars. Who, who, who's here with me? Uh, these are good seats. And, but I got to tell you, there is just something about walking up to that usher with his red vest or whatever, yellow vest, and him going to me, tickets. What do you got? You know, here they are. Take some of that, Mr. Usher man. Thank you very much. <laughs> could, you, could you show me to him? Could you walk me on down there? Um, now just the, 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 the reality that I have a ticket to the best seat in the house. And no one can deny that. No one can kick me out. No one can give me the boot. No one can send me to upper reserve. Or to the bleachers. Get me down to that good seat. I think this is the promise that Jesus is making to those who overcome, to those who remain faithful and true, to those who battle the temptations and the distractions and all the things that could steer us from this and that could so compromise our community, to those who fight against it with all that we have and who, who, who make a choice to say, with all the strength that the Spirit gives me, I will reflect the image of Christ into the world in which I live. I will not be a sponge or a reflection of the values and convictions of this world and this society and this culture that seeks to get inside of me. I will be a reflection of the things of Christ. I will be a reflection of love and joy and grace and forgiveness. I will be a reflection of service. I won't just take Jesus and what this world has to offer, I'll just take Jesus. And that'll be good enough. And he says to me, and he says to you, here's your ticket. Here's your ticket. Come on in. Come on in. Yeah, let's stand together, can we? Lord Jesus, it's a word that we need to hear. And so I pray that we would each have ears to hear, that, that we as a church, the personality, the, the ethos, the spirit, the angel of our church would have ears to hear what the spirit is saying to us here this morning, that, that while we live in a culture where it could very easily be said, Satan has set up his throne here, 
the city, the place, the culture where Satan lives. Easy, very, very easy to be said that. We have one who lives in us who is greater. We have access to one who is more powerful. To one who can work in such a way that we need not give in to the powers and the, the principalities of this world. The values and the convictions of this culture and society that surround us. But that we may be so filled that we may so soak in the values and the truths of the kingdom of heaven that we might now and one day in the future still to come receive a ticket. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that you don't just call us and leave us, but you invite us to a life like this. You invite us to be a church like this. And then you fill us with your Holy Spirit. We're listening today, Holy Spirit. We're listening. And there are some among us this morning, there are some within our body who, who, are, who are leaving themselves with their guard down. Maybe many of us, maybe all of us at some level are leaving ourselves with our guard down. We're trying to live in both worlds. We're, having to ha we're trying to have our cake and eat it too. We're, we're living for you to some extent, but we're also keeping our hand, our foot in this other world. Whether it's some form of entertainment, whether it's our pursuit of wealth and riches and money, maybe it's our, 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 our quest for political power or, or might, whatever it might be, maybe it's something completely different, but we're, we're trying to live in both places and we're leaving ourselves vulnerable, not only personally, but, but the church. And Jesus, we know that that's not just some casual matter for you. And so if we're there this morning, if anyway we're there as a church body this morning, if we're dabbling in, in some things that we need not to, would you send your Holy Spirit to lovingly convict and correct us and point us into the truth that you have before us? Help us not to long for you and for something else. Help us to long only for you, Lord Jesus. Help us to be a church characterized by this single pursuit. Help us to be people characterized by that same pursuit. We give you thanks. Speak to our hearts even now as we respond to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Let's sing. Let's sing.